What is God? What is God? The creator of the world. Wrong. Let me prove it to you. Let me prove it to you. Was God God before he created the world? Yes. Yes. Yeah. But it would be false to say it was the creator of the world then. Mm-hmm. Did God change and become something different? No. So he's not, that's not an answer to what God. Now, if I were to ask you who created the world, you would be correct in saying God. Yeah. But again, what is God? God. You can't define God. Who is God? God is different than what? No, I want what is God. God, God is God. above all logic. That's what God is? No, but you can't, a feature of God. But you can't describe God because there's God is such as nothing else. That's not answering. You can describe Okay. So in Jewish in Jewish philosophy, an important distinction is made. Okay, I'm gonna give you some technical words. One word is the word is um, the essence. In Hebrew, the word that I'm using that's equivalent for essence is mohos, related to the Hebrew word ma. The essence of something is what it is. Is whatever God is. Mm-hmm. But do we know One second. There is another word. The English word that's usually used for this is existence. The Hebrew word is mitzias from the word matzah, find. Okay. Now, if you walk into a, a room and you've never been to this place, you don't know anything, um, how would you know who's the king? Sitting on the throne, right? So the throne is a sign that this is the king. That's how you found the king. In other words, you used the throne to find the king, right? Does that mean you now recognize the king? No. No. Okay. If I find a loaf of bread and I want to know who's the owner, and someone says, "Oh, there was a there was a coin in it," well, now I, I've known that this loaf of bread belongs to you, right? But with my hat, I just recognize it, right? Kosher animals, we need signs to tell us that they're kosher, right? We can't just recognize their kosher, what makes them kosher, what it is about them that is kosher or not kosher. It's the signs, right? Okay. Is my hat God? No. Well, if you don't know what God is... You can't say that. One second. If you don't know what God is, then perhaps my hat is in fact God. Maybe you should. <laughs> There's signs that tell you it's not God. Very good. What's a sign that this is not God? It's limited. I would like you to use more concrete words for, for everyone's You're able benefit. to hold it. I'm able to hold it. Hmm. Okay. Now, we could then interrogate that, but you're saying, okay, the fact that something can be held is an indication it's not God. I don't know what God is. Well, now that's a question. Like, what, what, well, so I actually have to do the other way around. I also have to find God. So tell me something about God. He's everywhere. He's incapable of being held. No, that's, well, just, yeah, that's just what we're saying. He's everywhere. Yeah, something more He's tangible. God is... He's endless. Give me something tangible. I don't want... I want, you to, I, want, I, want, I want you to realize when you use words which are very abstract and words also which require other words to do a lot of the work. Like we say, like, oh, death. 
and just death is like the absence of life. <laughs> that's like, you ever really, they say, God is infinite. Okay, so that means just he's not finite. What does it mean to be finite? And like, okay, that's an interesting question. God created the world. God, God created the world. That's good. Okay, right? That I understand what that means, at least in some sense, because I don't understand what it means that things are, things are there. Mm-hmm. Like I have kids. And they used to not be there. So there was like a shift from them being there to not being there. And if we kind of like take everything and we say, well, in some sense that happened. And it's kind of hard to imagine when, when, before anything's there. But okay, fine. And God, God did that. Okay. So I still don't know what God is. Right? But now I say, okay, wait a minute. Does it make sense that someone who creates the world could be held in a hand? No. And I think a lot. Mm-hmm. And I conclude, no. So therefore I know that this is not God. Right? Make sense? Mm-hmm. Am I getting closer to knowing what God is? Yeah. No, I'm not. <laughs> I am not getting closer to knowing what God is. I'm getting closer to finding God. And by finding, I mean having a sense of what is and isn't God, right? The distinction between, to be able to discern between God and not God. Want to hear a cool story? There was a rabbi named Rabbi Emanuel Shochat. Rabbi Emanuel Shochat was... What? No. So Rabbi Emanuel Shochat, um, one of the things that he did is he engaged in um, debates um, and, and counter-mission, with Christians and counter-missionary activities, um, which is a long story in and of itself. Um, and so he tells a story that one time um, some woman called up and um, she was trying to persuade him because she'd seen him in debate that in fact he was... Um, he was wrong and he should become a Christian um, and that and that she should and that she's trying to convince him that uh, Christianity was true because I mean after all she has prayed and the uh, the uh, person they worship in Christianity appeared to her and so if he, if he would also pray he would also appear and then he would believe the truth and he says he was quite cheeky he says well I actually did pray and um, he did appear to me. She's really? He says, yes. And he was there. And um, on his right was Torquemada. And on his left was Hitler. Yes. Behind him was Stalin. And there were flames wrapping up around them. And their eyes were turned upwards. And they said, forgive us, Father, for we knew not what we've done. <laughs> and she goes, oh, no, 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 no. That wasn't him. That was Satan you saw. And he says, how can you be sure? Maybe what you saw was Satan, and I saw the real thing. <laughs> and then she hangs up the phone. <laughs> how do you know if you have a mystical experience, it's God? Really? How do you know this isn't... One second, how do you know this isn't God? Because I can. So maybe if we do a greater examination into what must and must not be true if a being creates the world. We are able to find God in the sense where we say, okay, that can't be God and that can't be God and that can't be God and that, that, that's a legitimate candidate for being a communication from God and that's not right. And we're getting close to having a kind of a mental grasp on God in the sense that we can differentiate his existence from other things. That doesn't mean we're getting any closer to knowing what God is, right? The same, in, in, in other words, I can, I, can, I can ascertain that something belongs to me by saying my name is written in it, there's a coin stuck in the loaf of bread, whatever it is, right? That's not the same thing as actually seeing it. 
Because there are certain things that to the essence of the essence of them, the what they are, must be encountered directly. So, for instance, is any amount of reasoning going to help you know what chocolate tastes like? No. What if you tasted sugar? You've tasted cocoa. You've tasted milk. No. Right, there, right. There's something you need to experience directly, right? Can a person who's blind from birth, right, know what we mean when we say red? No. No. Now, they can still they can still use many signs. For instance, um, they, they, they there's some things about say colors. Like for instance, we associate colors with emotions. Yeah. Right. Right. So, um, you know. If I say red and sad, they don't go well together, right? And they could learn that, right? Mm-hmm. Right. And so they could say, like, someone, someone says, you know, this, um, you know, this painting is like, it's a lot of, got a lot of blue in it. And he says, oh, does it look sad? Because they can, no, blue, sad. It seems there's some, there's some, I don't know exactly what blue is, but I know sadness is, and apparently blue is something that goes together with it, because I trust other people. So there's ways through its accepting things from, from experience or from reasoning or from other people where you learn what things do and don't go together and you can start to differentiate different aspects of existence. And so what we can know is we, we can know about God, this is what the Jewish philosophers say, is that we can know his mitzias, his existence, but we can't know his muhus, his essence. Meaning not just that we can know that God exists, we can also know in what way God's existence is unlike and different from and distinct from the existence of, say, a hat, right? Or, um, you know, or, or psychedelic experience, whatever the case might be, right? But to ask, what is God? The only way to answer that was we have to have a direct sense of God. And the only way to have a direct sense of God, the Jewish philosophers say, is to God. be God. No. Oh. <laughs> because to, to have a direct sense of something, you have to have something, you have to have something in common, and God has nothing in common with anything else, so the only way to know God is to be God. Okay. Now. What about That's what I said the Jewish philosophers say. Okay, now. One of the great Jewish philosophers, um, his name was the Rambam, and um, he, he, in dealing with many issues, um, described Hashem using reason. He said that God is the knower, the knowledge, and the known. I don't want to get into what he meant. But not everyone agreed with him, and this was criticized. And it was criticized by someone named the Maral of Prague. Um, and he says you cannot describe God that way. You can't talk about God that way. God is not reason. And, okay. and so he says, and if God is not reason, and God is certainly not a physical thing, then you may ask, what is God? To which I reply, and the life of your own soul, do you know what that is? In other words, what do we know of life? Its essence or its existence? Its mohos or its metzias? Its existence. Its existence. We know what it is like when we are a living. When a, we know what it is like when life plays out in our, for lack of words, life. At, right? And we can analyze and reflect on that, right? But if we ask ourselves, let's strip all the way and ask ourselves, what is life itself? So you can't really define it. Well, the more you think about it, defining things isn't, is kind of almost a paradoxical thing. Because if something truly has an essence of what it is unto itself, in its essence, it is unique. And therefore... 
Not because it's God, just because the way we define things is by using words which have meaning beyond that thing. Yeah. Okay. So, um, in that way of thinking, what we mean by life is we can we can talk about life and say, okay, this is life. This is not life. This is more life. This is less life. This appears to be life. It's not really life, because we can still deal with its existence. It's mitzias. So, but an interesting way to, to get that, any discussion started is to ask yourself the what question. And even if you ask yourself the what question, you realize that you may not be able to really get what it truly is, what's the essence of something, but you could actually start to get a very distinct sense as you kind of clarify, well, it can't be like this and it must be like that. More like relative to other things. That's right. The difference between the essence of something and the existence of something is the essence of something is what it is unto itself. And the existence of something is how it is found, how it plays out in relation to other things. Does that make sense? And life is a very good example where we all know what life is and we don't know what life is. And now the trick is, can we talk about the mitzias of life, the way life exists in a way that's intelligent and coherent, and then understand why we then describe God in those, those ways. But, right, or are we just like throwing around words and definitions without thinking too much? Okay, so I wasn't going to go into that, but if this was bothering you now, hopefully, <laughs> hopefully it bothers you a little bit less. Yes. Okay. Okay. Um, you know what you'll realize if you think about this? What's the answer in the deepest sense to any question that takes the form of what is in the deepest sense? What is love? What, what is, is love? What is, what is hope? Nothing. And what you start Nothing. to realize, what you start to realize is you, you can talk a lot about how that thing plays out, what conditions it needs in order to be present, right? Mm -hmm. It's inner complexities, right? But if you want to strip all that away and just to get like what it is in of itself, you, you may, you can't. And if you get a sense of it, which you might, you the only thing you can do is simply say, it is love. It is love. Yeah. <laughs> okay. That's an important thing, just A, to be aware of, and B, when you learn chassidus, you'll see that that issue plays out. Okay, now let's get back to the tiny. So we learned that the supernal will, the, the, the pun in the face, is the source of life, but it is in no way bestowed upon the sitra achra, and then he has this blah, 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 blah in the middle, and therefore it is the abode of death and defilement, because God preserves us. Now, we're going to do the blah, blah, blah in the middle part. But before we do that, um, I want you to pay attention to the words, starting from the sentence, but since. But since it is in no way bestowed on the sitra achra, so he's using the word bestowed. Mm -hmm. Sounds like generous. One second. It is, yeah. And even the so-called hinder part of the supernal is not actually clothed in it. So he's using the word clothed. It merely hovers over it from above. So we have being bestowed, clothed, and hovering. Hovering from above. Yes? Mm -hmm. Now, why do we have three different words? Or three different verbs there? I want you to look at the text and tell me why are there are three different words being used there. Is this like light, Kyle? Light? No, I just want you to look at the text. 
I'm not saying that you're wrong or not going on thing, but I want I want to work from the text rather than remembering what I said yesterday. The first word is referring to the to the supernal will and the clothes in it and hover it over it. Oh, it's actually oh, wait, sorry. No wait. The hinder part of like it refers to the different thing. Like, right, right, okay. So so the, the first the first thing, the bestowed, is talking about what is the relationship between the 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 countenance, the face, the punim of the divine will and its relationship with the Sitra And it says it is not bestowed on it mm-hmm. at all. Period. Okay. Then it talks about Wait, the relationship between Read. Now the supernal will, the quality of countenance, that's the pun and that's the face, mm-hmm. is the source of the life which was but it is in no way bestowed on the Sitra mm-hmm. mm-hmm. And then we move to the hind part of the supernal will, mm-hmm. and that we say it's, not it's just not clothed. But it, but it, it does hover. So, right, we have to differentiate. What's the relationship between the, the God's face versus God's back, using that terminology? Does God's face in any way relate to the sitrachra? No. What about the back? Yeah. Yeah, but not in a way of being clothed, but in a way of hovering. So we have to distinguish between these three things, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, one thing that I think is very important before I go, before I go forward. When you're learning something that has unfamiliar words, very often, and also unfamiliar Ideas. Very often it becomes a word game that people feel like the goal is to know the, know the jargon, know the meanings of the words. Um, and, and this is wrong. It's, it's wrong for two reasons. One reason why it's wrong is because the people that were using the words weren't using them to just have words to define, right? They were trying, trying to say something. <laughs> if you study Talmud, for instance, right? Nobody spends their time thinking, well, it says if the cow gores the ox. <laughs> We're gonna have a class on what cow means, <laughs> a class on what goring means, and a class on what ox are. <laughs> I understand that, like, we're talking about the cow goring the ox, the ox goring the cow, like, to say a point about some like point of law, right? The words are being used in a sentence. The sentences are being used strung together to convey ideas, right? Um, but but the other thing is, words change their meaning. The relationship between words and meaning is not one to one. It's not a code. Okay. Anytime you've translated this from any language into another language, you start to realize that that just because a word meant one thing in one sentence doesn't mean it means exactly the same thing in the next sentence, or certainly for different authors using the word. And that's even true within one language. Right? Okay. And you can say, well, then why are you using the same word? It's an interesting feature of language, okay? That we, we, the relationship between words and meaning is much more complex. And therefore, um, we always want to be a little bit cautious about not getting hung up and let's define the words, let's define the terms if it's going to take us away from understanding the flow of the ideas. Now, what we did yesterday, I would like to point out, we did get very hung up on what we mean by life, right? Yeah. But do you notice, and, and hopefully th- 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 this was effective, is that I was trying to, to talk about it in a context that it made, made that sentence make sense. Mm-hmm. 
right? It wasn't, let's, let's talk about the chassidic definition of life. Like, I could have done lots of things about the chassidic definition of life, how chassidus uses the word life in different contexts. But there was trying to, you can see the point being made, right? What it is about this term life that makes that idea make sense. Okay, so we need to do the same thing here. We need to understand what does it mean this being bestowed versus being enclosed, this is hovering. In the context here, now it could be that those, the words are used in similar ways in other places. It could also use the word differently in other places. Okay? Um, for those of you who like the Hebrew, the, the, um, the Hebrew that he's for bestowed is hashra. The, the active verb is shaira, as in hashra sashchina, which is the residing the, of, the, of the divine presence. That's how that term is used in that context. His slabshus, being enclosed. Um, and then you have makif, um, which means um, encompassing. Makif ala Okay, so let's, let's understand. What, and again, those terms may be used slightly differently in different contexts. In fact, um, you can end up having miscommunication if you use the wrong word and people you know, read too much into the word or something like that. Okay. If I want to encounter the sunlight, I want, I want to experience the sunlight. What do I need? To go outside. That, right? Going outside work. What if I'm unable to go outside? A window. A window, right? I need something that allows the sunlight in, right? Do I need to coordinate how the sun and something else are going to fit together? No. No, right? So I could be in a room, right? And enjoy the sunlight provided that there are windows in the right spot and they're big enough, right? In fact, some people have houses like that where they've got nice windows proportions they can enjoy the sun even from the inside if it's cold, for example. Right? Make sense? Okay. If your teacher's in a really good mood, what do you need in order to um, benefit from that? Be with them. You need to be with them. Now, that obviously, physically, you need to be in the same room, but is that enough to just physically be in the same room? No. Interact with them. No, you don't need to interact with them. You need to be open. You need to be open. Right? In other words, if, if you're like ruminating over how miserable your life is and your teacher's in a good mood giving the class, right? It's very likely that it will just not affect you at all because you're closed off to it, right? Makes sense, right? There needs to be an openness and a receptivity for that to, for that to be present. That makes sense? Okay. In order for the... The, the, the divine will, the face of the divine will, right? With the idea that Hashem actually has some sort of openness and desire towards something, right? That he's showing himself. What's, what's needed is that the others, is that wherever he's showing himself is open to it, okay? That makes sense? Now the term we would use in this context for open to it would be bittel, that the thing is bottle to Hashem. Is klipa bottle? No. So is in any way Hashem going to be showing his face towards the klipa? Okay, now let's go a little bit deeper, right? If I know that somebody is going to give me the cold shoulder, I know that somebody is in no way going to be open to, to me, am I, then what am I going to do? Am I just going to sit there and like trying to like... You're not going to try. Right, like why would I, why would I do that? Mm -hmm. Right? 
I'm not the sun. I have, I have control over myself, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, this is why sometimes you may think you know somebody and you don't, because sometimes the people are reacting to you because of how... You're familiar with this idea that you think someone is going to be mean to you, so you start being mean to them, and so they just decide like, there's no reason to show their nice side to you, and they don't, ever. And then you conclude, see, I was right, they were mean. <laughs> so yeah, that, that's kind of the dynamic with the klipa. But that dynamic with the klipa is between the klipa and Hashem's panim, his face, right? Hashem creates the klipa in such a way that the klipa is um, rejecting the openness to Hashem. Hashem doesn't show his face, his face, right? So there's no, the, the, not, nothing of his face resides there at all in any way, shape, or form. Good? Okay. But what about, we did say that the klipa does have some relationship with the backside, right? The idea that Hashem, right, was the backside, the idea that Hashem doesn't like it, but needs it for some reason. Mm-hmm. Okay. So now, you think, okay, the klipa doesn't have the face of Hashem's will, but it has the backside. And they says, no, even that you don't have. Now, why is that important? Because if Hashem's will is the source of life, even if you don't get the front, but you get the back, there's still some sort of life there, right? So we don't want it to give you, and the whole point of this is that it's not supposed to be getting any life, right? Because a little bit of life is not the same thing as that. It's a lot, just a little life. So we can't get that. So that means the back also has some sort of life to it, right? So that's what we have to understand. Like, so the backside of Hashem's will has some kind of life. And if the backside were somehow enclosed within it, engaged within it, right? Like we say that the soul's clothed in the body and the body becomes aligned. If the back part of Hashem's will was clothed in the klipa, then the klipa would some kind of, some kind of life and there would be something goodly and divine within there. Mm-hmm. So there's really a few things we need to understand now. One... What, what does it mean the backside of Hashem's will has life? Number two, what does it mean that it's hovering above? Because hovering above doesn't mean it's totally disconnected. That was like the front, right? The front is totally disconnected, not engaged at all. So what does it mean that it's, it's engaged in some sense, but it's not like being enclosed. It's not like being enmeshed and engaged. So what is that? Doesn't it need at least some part of God to exist? I don't want to go into that yet. Okay. I actually want to. I, I want to get into that as we move on in the in, in the paragraph. Not yet. Okay. So, why does Hashem create klipa? What? Punish the evil. To punish the evil. Okay. Now. Is that something Hashem desires? Yes. No. no. Or is that utility for something else? Utility for something else. It's just to get but it's, it's still satisfying. It's just to give like, better whatever to the people who do good. No, he gives two different reasons. One, to punish the wicked, and the other is to reward the people who do good, mm-hmm. to subjugate the evil. No, that's actually interesting. It's something Hashem desires. That's what, one of the things that so makes... Hashem does desire. Hashem does desire the destruction of evil. As equally as Actually, more, but we're not going to... But it's both. It makes sense. That it one second. More than I, I want to be clear about the question that I'm asking, because I don't want this to go off the rails. Mm-hmm. I'm simply asking, when Hashem has a will to create evil so that it can be destroyed, punishing the wicked, is that because that itself is something Hashem desires, or is that a means to something else? I'm giving you one of two options, and you can't do both or a little bit of one. Mm-hmm. Or a little bit. 
is that something that in and of itself Hashem desires, or or is that it's something that in and of itself Hashem desires? Okay. Now, things that people find meaningful, valuable, desirable. Is there a lot of life present in their desiring of those things, in their valuing of things, in their wanting those things? Yeah. Yes. So is there a lot of Hashem's life in His will? Yeah. Even the will to, to destroy evil? Yes. Yeah. If He wants this as much, right? then that means that people are justified. So, so right, right. And, and this is, by the way, an argument people make all the time. Right, people will make this argument and not realize it. Uh, some, some, somebody will say, maybe a rabbi who's somewhat cynical like myself, might say that something is 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 not a good thing, and someone say, yeah, but we need it, and God created it for a reason, so it must be good. The argument being, if God creates it for a reason, right, there's some kind of desire behind that, and somehow that desire, the goodness of God, God desiring has to be good, right, by definition. So if God's desiring is good, and this thing is created because of God's desire, somehow the goodness has to transfer over, right? And this is saying, does that work that way? No. No. Okay. So, um... I'm going to give some examples of this, which, which hopefully make this clear. Before I got married, I, one of my uh, mentors, Mashpia, he told me that it's very important to fight when you're married. Fight often and fight well. What? Why is it important to fight? Why is it important to fight? Before we get to why you should fight often and fight well, it why is shows, it important? It shows your character. Meaning, it shows your boundaries and it shows your character because if you disagree with something, that's the way that you express it. I'm for, like, meaning. Mm-hmm. Shows you values. Shows you care. Shows you care? If stuff goes yeah. unresolved in the wrong time, it blow up. Yeah, but that, that goes into that goes into the fight often and fight well part. I'm just saying why it's important to fight, period. Like, wouldn't it be better if we didn't fight? It shows that there is something that you want to, like, invest in. (laughs) Sounds stupid. No, it's something. Come out. Right. Right. Like, if you. Is fighting for the fight? Very good. Okay, so here's the thing. Here's the thing. The reason why I didn't respond to a lot of the first things you said is because they're all focused on you as an individual, and nothing in marriage should come back to you as an individual. If your explanation of why anything in marriage is a good or bad thing, comes back to you as an individual, that's not a satisfactory explanation. Right? Everything has to come back to us. us, the couple, the marriage. And really not the couple as a distinct couple, the couple as the kind of cornerstone of the family mm-hmm. with all that that entails. Okay, so here's the thing. A, is it good for your body to be at war with itself? No. So is it good for a family to be at war with itself? No. Okay. If you don't fight, things are unresolved, which means you're at war with yourself even if it's not boiling over to the surface, right? There is a lack of unity. So the result of fighting can be resolution that brings to a deeper closeness, yes? Mm -hmm. And you say, well, why can't we get to that closeness some other way? And what's the answer there? Well, but, but, but why, why is this the only way to get to the closest? People are different. Because people are different, right? 
And so, and the fight is, the fight is the confronting the differences. And if the differences are not superficial, but deep differences, then, right, the more, like, then you know, if the difference is superficial, then just grow up and let go of it. It's not a big deal, right? But if the differences are, are deep, then there needs to be some surfacing of the differences. That is a fight. Mm-hmm. Now, this should be done often, as you pointed out, because if you don't do it often, then you do too much all at once and it blows up, it's hard to manage. But it all should be done well. And well means that the differences, as painful as they are, are being surfaced for the purpose, consciously, of finding some kind of deeper resolution and closeness, right? Okay. So now, knowing all of this, let's say we, we really know this and we, we assimilate that and we absorb it and we really get it. Is that something we really want? Do we really want to, no. when we're married, to fight with our spouse? No. 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 But, <laughs> but isn't that... Because yeah. the thing is, we don't want the fight. We want the deeper no. unity that's after it. We want the resolution from the fight, right? Okay? So that sense that you're, you're alive, you're desired, you're engaged, is that no. aimed at the... Is that, is, that, is, is that engaged with the fight or the resolution of the fight? Resolution. The resolution, right? Your positive attitude, your energy, your desire, right? It's not towards the fighting at all. Mm-hmm. It just what? It has to be through that means. It, but what does it do? Shows what does it do relative to the fighting? It shows the, it shows the it does it individual no, no, what, what is the fact that you want the resolution? What does it do? You try to push it off. The fighting is actually like... It makes you tolerate the fight. In other words, like this, yeah? You have a fight, and it's a bad fight, and it's unpleasant. It's really unpleasant. What do you want to do when you're in a really stop unpleasant it. situation? Stop it. Stop it. Okay, there's two ways to stopping a fight and, to, and the unpleasantness. Wait. <laughs> one second, one second. The two ways are... The two ways are that you either artificially stop the fight, okay, and or you actively stop the fight. The way you actively stop the fight um, is you basically get the other person to, to withdraw. They, they, they back out, they walk away, they run away. How do you artificially stop the fight? Well, you have two ways to do that. You could just walk away and stay silent, right? Right? Or you could do stuff like cover over and paper over the differences, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. But you're like, all of those come from the fact that the fighting is unpleasant. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, because the fighting is unpleasant, you don't want to tolerate it and therefore you withdraw and therefore what happens is the fight doesn't happen. So if you're going to fight to a proper conclusion, what do you need to do? You need to have a tolerance for the fight, right? Mm-hmm. Where does that tolerance come from? Your desire for the, resolution. for the resolution. But the desire is not aimed at... The fight. It's, not the it's just that desire gives you a certain tolerance for the fight. See the difference? Mm-hmm. Okay. Right? There are many things that we find extremely unpleasant and repulsive because they go against us. If you are, if you are in conflict with someone you care about, that is painful. We do not desire painful things, right? But the desire for the resolution gives us the tolerance towards that pain. It doesn't make it less painful. 
but it allows the pain, allows us to, to go through that painful experience, right? So Hashem's desire to see evil destroyed, to see evil humiliated, is that actually in any way engaged with the Sitra Achra itself? No. No. What the, the only relationship the Sitra Achra has with that is that gives Hashem a certain tolerance of the Sitra Achra. But tolerance is very sh- disconnected, right? So it's like hovering? That's the hovering. So it's disconnected but not completely connected. That's right. It's a, it's a different thing. Right? I want you to think about this notion of tolerance because it's, it's, it's the right way of thinking about what he means in this context. Is tolerance a good thing? Sometimes. No, it's a bad thing. It's always a bad thing. It's always a bad thing. Always, always a bad thing. But then it's not... I want to... I'm going to be, be annoying about words for a moment. Okay? I'm going to explain to you what I mean. Is chemotherapy a good thing? No. I wouldn't say it's a good thing. You know why? It's not a good thing. Because the itself is a good result. No, yes, because the, like, the cancer is a, like dying from cancer is worse than getting it. Cancer is bad. Right? Yeah? Chemotherapy. Chemo- One second. One second. If we could cure cancer, that would be? Good. Good. You know what would be even better? Yeah. We're really good? If people didn't have cancer. Right? Mm-hmm. See... Things which their only value is they solve a problem have no real value in and of themselves. One second, I want to go back to tolerance for a second, okay? So I would say, like, love is a good thing. Like, love, lo- love is a good thing. A world without love, that would not be as good of a world as a world with love. Right. A world that didn't need tolerance would be better. Because what is tolerance? Acceptance of bad Acceptance of things that are in conflict with you, right? Stuff of bad stuff, right? If, we could, if, there was, if there was only good and everything was harmonious, would we need tolerance? Just think about where we use the word, right? You have a high pain tolerance. You can tolerate um, bad bad, other people's bad behavior, right? Okay. How tolerant is God? Very. He's infinitely tolerant because he's infinite, right? That means like God can allow an infinite amount of bad stuff to happen. It doesn't mean he will, but he could, right? Now here's the thing, is, and again, I'm not saying tolerance is, 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 is like an evil thing that we need to eradicate, but we have to realize it's not a good thing. If you have a friend, right, the less tolerance required in that relationship, the better, mm-hmm. right? Because yeah. the tolerance is for the, is for the parts of which you're not, the parts of your lives where you're not really friends. Right? We're complicated people, right? And we're not friends in every aspect of our being, but we can't like cut each other into pieces, so... We tolerate the other parts, right? Mm-hmm. A marriage requires a lot of tolerance, but like that's not a good thing. It's a necessary thing. That makes sense? Yeah. Okay. Give you a very simple example of tolerance. Somebody does something that's annoying. It doesn't bother you. That's tolerance. you find it cute and charming. It's not tolerance to me. That's not. It's liking. It doesn't bother you. It doesn't bother you. But I said that what what kind of thing is it? Annoying. It's an annoying thing. What? It's, but it's you, not you annoying if you find beauty, it beautiful. Yeah, if you find it beautiful. Right. What? If you find it beautiful. It's not okay, so the, the, what's the difference between those two things? If there's someone doing something which is annoying, 
And yes, I realize I'm implying that things are objectively annoying. Yeah. And you are not annoyed. That means you're tolerating. Now, one way you can be tolerating is that you're just not paying attention to it, or you decide not to let it bother you, or you're so involved in other things. There's many ways to achieve tolerance, but they all involve some level of indifference. So your indifference is that part of that person's life, which, okay, it might not be the end of the world, but it's not like a good thing. And maybe, again, it's necessary for us to get along with each other sometimes. But you know what would be a good thing? No, you find that thing charming. You find the, you, then you can be very engaged with it. Right? And people who are close, friends, spouses, parents, children, they're really close, they often find... They're annoying things. Charming. They're annoying things. Cute and charming. And that's the thing, right? It's, it, 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 and by the way, that's, it's very weird because it's something that's very intimate just between them, right? It's, it's very unique to them. It's about their, their closeness. Okay, um, so if klipa, the sitra this evil exists, why does Hashem tolerate it? Why does Hashem allow it to exist? Where does that tolerance for it because come from? Result. See, result. He desires what? Result. What's the result he desires? No, what? Evil to be eradicated. He desires to see the evil eradicated. And because he desires to see it be eradicated, he tolerates it existence in, until it gets right. eradicated. But it, so is, is his desire in any way clothed in, engaged with the klipa? No. No. It's just that the desire produces a certain level of tolerance, a certain level of indifference, a certain level of willingness for it to exist. And so the altar describes that as a kind of hovering over it rather that his desire is hovering over it rather than his desire is actually mm-hmm. in it. And so therefore, how much of Hashem's desire is present within the klipa? None. None. So, that's why it's so therefore, it's the place of death. Mm-hmm. Okay? Even those things that I feel are absolutely necessary, my desire is never clothed in them. At best, I have a willingness and tolerance for them. But in that willingness and tolerance, I'm also very as disengaged from them. My desire is very much me. And so my desire for whatever it is that I need this thing for never actually runs through the thing. If you desire, if you, again, if you desire that the, 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 the closeness and depth of connection that comes from fighting with someone that you're close to, say a spouse, that desire doesn't run through the experience of fighting. You don't desire the experience of fighting. It just gives you the tolerance and the willingness to go through that so you can have the other thing, right? Mm-hmm. So how much of your desire is present in a really bad fight with your spouse? How much of your desire is present when, 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 when a tragedy occurs? Tragedies can be places of growth, right? When you desire to grow, does that not give you tolerance for tragedy? Mm-hmm. You can tolerate and bear the tragedies in life if you desire to grow from them? Sure. Mm-hmm. Does that mean you desire the tragedies? No. no. Are you seeing how this works? Like, just because something can serve a role doesn't mean it is desirable. It doesn't mean it is a good. And so what of God's desire, his will, his yearning, his whatever word you like to use, which is what gives life to things, is present in the klipa? Well, the face not, is not engaged with it at all. Mm-hmm. And the back, it's not really there either. It's not like Hashem's passion to destroy Klippa is part of the Klippa. It's, it's not. Is not all right? It just, the Klippa lives off of Hashem's willingness to tolerate it. 
the fact that, um, you know, so you know, like kids, there's certain th- behaviors that kids can do simply because their parents are willing to tolerate it, yeah. right? Um, but but that's not the parents being engaged with them. It's like, yeah, I just don't want to deal with it. Right now, so. It's too time consuming, right? Or rather than run around and get them. Yes, they're making a lot of noise, but you know what? In 45 minutes, they'll be exhausted. It'll be easier to put them to bed. So I'm just gonna I'm just gonna tolerate it. Okay. But that's your your dis. Tolerating is a kind of relationship of, of disengagement. Right. <laughs> That's the extent of Hashem's will as, in, as much as it relates to the klipa. Yes, there's deep desire that involves the klipa existing, but it doesn't actually direct to the klipa. So tolerance could be really bad also. Tolerance is for sure bad. It's always bad. It's always bad. It's sometimes a necessary thing. Because tolerance is the way someone who is good allows bad to be there. Now, sometimes tolerance is wrong, right? You shouldn't tolerate some things. You think you should tolerate, right? If you, you know, if, if you correct every single grammatical mistake you hear from people because it's wrong, because you can't tolerate grammatical mistakes, I mean, it's fine. Grammatical mistakes are problems and they should be corrected, but the level of social dysfunction you're going to create for yourself doesn't justify it. So you should learn to tolerate some grammatical mistakes, right? You see what I'm saying? But in an ideal world, like everyone would just speak coherently and, and, and intelligently and grammatically correct and it would be wonderful, right? But, okay. Good? Okay. Now, let's continue. Four. The tiny amount of light and life that it derives and absorbs into itself from the so-called hinder part of the supernal holiness. Wait a minute. That should con- sounds like a contradiction. So wouldn't we just spend the whole paragraph explaining how there's nothing there, there's no light, that, there's, no light there's no life of God there. I think he also uses this word light as well. It's not there at all? Says, oh, yeah, oh yeah, that little bit that's there <laughs> is in a state of actual exile. That's right. So, we're going to have a kosher class now. Everyone wants some kosher food. If you have milk, and you have meat, Mm -hmm. and the milk is kosher, and the meat is kosher, simple, yeah? Mm -hmm. If you cook the milk and meat together, which is itself a sin, but let's not worry about that part, now the milk and meat mixture is forbidden. Yeah? Good? Not so hard. Now, you're familiar with the rule of nullifying something in 60, Bittul yes. Bashishim? Yes, everyone's familiar with that rule. So, if I have half an ounce of milk, half an ounce of cheese, and half an ounce of meat, and I cook them together, so I have a full ounce, and then it falls into some other pot. How much other food does have to be in that other pot? 60 ounces. 60 ounces, right? Because right, I have a half an ounce, I have a half an ounce of meat, a half an ounce of cheese, they're cooked together, and then they fall into my vegetable soup. The vegetable soup has to be how big? 60 ounces. Make sense? Why? Because... The milk is prohibited. The meat is prohibited. They, are the pro- they together are the prohibition. Mm-hmm. Okay. There is a technical term for this. Okay. The technical term for this is chaticha, atzma, nisus, nevela. 
or sometimes the atma is dropped, which means the peace itself, or the peace, sometimes you can drop the atma in itself, nisus becomes nevela. Nevela means carrion or meat that, from an animal that just died, but that's a stand-in for just forbidden food. So the, the, the peace itself becomes forbidden, right? When the milk, when the cheese and the meat are cooked together, the meat, which was previously permitted, has now itself become forbidden. The, the cheese that used to be permitted has now itself become forbidden. And so there's how many ounces of forbidden food? One full ounce, and that makes sense, yeah? Nothing too complicated here, right? Now, what happens if I have an ounce of kosher meat? And onto my ounce of kosher meat drops one-tenth of an ounce of pig fat while I'm cooking it. So now I have one-tenth of an ounce of pig fat that was absorbed into one ounce of meat. And then it falls into a pot. Mm-hmm. How much vegetable soup do I need for the vegetable soup to stay kosher? 60. 60 times what? The drop. The drop. Because here, what is the prohibition? The pig fat, right? The pig fat is the thing that is prohibited. I know. Here's the thing. I can't eat the ounce of meat because it's got the pig fat absorbed into it, right? You can't eat the pig fat. And it's not 60 times. It's only 10 times, right? But when I now move it into the bigger pot, right? Yeah? Okay. That's one opinion. <laughs> What's that? I'm not going to purpose a whole other complicated. Some will save a whole piece. Right, but there is an opinion, which is the view that Ashkenazim follow, which is that the piece of meat itself, nicest nevela, becomes forbidden. And so now, we don't say that you can't eat the meat because of the pig fat in it. We say the meat itself has become forbidden. forbidden. And now how much? 60. I need 60 ounces. Now, let's imagine it falls into a soup of 59 ounces. And then now that whole soup falls into... A second soup. Well, now that soup is going to eat 60 times. The 59 ounces. The 59 ounces plus the original piece of meat, plus, right? So it's now going to eat 60 times 60. Yeah. Just One second. Mm-hmm. So there's this idea that food, which the food actually becomes prohibited. And not like milk and meat where that is the definition of the prohibition, but its contact with the prohibited thing causes its status to Change. change. This is the classic example of what happens to divine energy that is within the klipa. That it's, just... it's changed to become the klipa. The klipa. Well, is this like the little bit of fat that's in a uh, incomplete solid? No, no, that's a different idea. Okay, so, so this is what it means he says it's in exile. Let me explain. What is the difference? What is the difference between the... So let's say you have um, some klipa, and the klipa has some godliness within it, which is a new idea. We haven't learned this yet, right? What's the difference between the godliness in the klipa and the klipa? What? The klipa. What's the difference between them? No, no, right now, right now. We can do something. I'm not asking about us. I'm not asking about us. I have, there's, there's, there's a demon, and that demon has some... Godly energy inside of it, apparently, because that's what we just learned. Different than what we learned up until the past five minutes ago, right? Every demon that has... Like, Fine, but I'm using one as an example. We'll call him Bob. Bob the demon, <laughs> he's like really evil, right? He hates God and desires God's presence to be banished from the universe. And what does he have inside of himself? He has some, a, little some, a little bit of divine energy. Mm-hmm. What is the difference between him and the divine energy? The 
One is life and one is death. What? The divine energy is enslaved to the physical. What's the difference? Describe the difference between them. It feels differently about. No. The difference is the difference. The difference is like this: the divine energy inside the, inside our demon Bob is just as evil as Bob. Right, it's assimilated to the whole. hundred percent, just as evil as Bob. Just just like the meat, it's just as prohibited as it's just as much a pro- prohibited food now as the little pig fat. Right. Okay. There is one difference though. Bob can't exist without the divine energy inside of him. And the divine energy. <laughs> Right? What they, they, well, the way they differ is in their causal relationship. Bob exists because of the divine energy. The divine energy doesn't exist because of Bob. That's the only difference. So what that means, though, that if you took the divine energy out of Bob, what would happen to Bob? Well, he would exist. And if you took the divine energy out of Bob, would the divine energy now be in Klippa anymore? No. So could it be, like, rescued? Yes. Okay, that's the difference. But so long as the divine energy is in Bob... The only difference is that Bob needs the divine energy to keep existing. But the divine energy within Bob is as evil as Bob. In fact, it's as ev- so evil, it's what's making Bob evil. Right? There's that dynamic. Think about a fight. Right? If, if you really hate somebody and you treat them really poorly, what's the normal thing to happen? They're going to reciprocate. And since they're treating you poorly, how are you going to treat them? More poorly. Yeah. So... So the, the little divine energy that is within Bob the demon, right, is being made evil by Bob the demon and thus reinforcing Bob the demon's evil, making, which makes it more evil. And so um, when we say, oh, in everything there are sparks. You hear that idea? There are sparks of holiness in everything. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Did you know, did you know that in, uh, did you know that in, uh, give me an example of really, like a really non-kosher food. Cheeseburgers. 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 What? Cheeseburger. Carbonara. Carbonara? What's that? Pasta with ham. Oh, good. Carbonara. Did you know that in carbonara... Did you know... It's apparently an Italian food with pasta and ham. Okay. Okay, so did you know that in carbonara, if you have it in America, chances are there's kosher pasta throughout the dish? (laughs) That's fine. But that pasta is no longer kosher. And, and again, according to the Ashkenazi view, it's not just you can't eat it. It's like actual piece of non-kosher food. Yeah. Just the causality of it's not being kosher is different in an like, interesting conceptual way. It's not going to become kosher if you like, like make a broccoli. Right. Right. It doesn't help you. Right. Yeah, it's become non-kosher, right? So conceptually, it's non-kosherness came about differently. The, the pork, the ham, is not kosher because God, God made it intrinsically not kosher. And the pasta is not kosher because of its contact with the pork. But now that it's not kosher, it's just as much a piece of non-kosher food. Even if you take the ham away, it's still... Not kosher. Not kosher. So okay. the light prior in clothing in the klipa is actually not evil at all. That's right. But once it goes into the klipa, how deeply does it assimilate into the klipa? How does God do that? That is a good question, which I'm not answering. But the point is, it happens. So, is the klipa full of divine energy and godly sparks? Sure, yeah. And therefore what? I'd just like to point out that divine, the only part of this divine spark that's still divine is its power to keep... I don't even say life. The power for it to 
to exist, right? And get, make it seem very alive, right? And seem very powerful and seem very appealing, right? All that it gets, Bob doesn't have that on his own. He's a demon, right? He's nothing on his own. He has that from the divine. But that spark is evil. That isn't spark it, has gone native. Isn't it only one type of Klippa though? No, it's all Klippas actually. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty heavy, right? Yeah. <laughs> now, to be true, not all klipas are evil in the same way. So when the spark goes native, right, if it's going native to like a softer klipa, the spark is like a little softer version of evil, right? It's not, okay. So there's some differences there. Yeah, like klipas nogo versus the shlosh klipas Okay. So yeah. Um, I feel like, um, yeah, that's very deep. He's pulling this in it, and by not yeah, but it's in it, and it, it's in it. Yeah, but in what state is it? Exile. Exile. What does it mean yeah. by exile? It that is just as evil. Evil, but by not associating yourself and by not giving oh. it power, that. Right. So here's the thing. If if you what happens now? Remember why does why does Klippa exist? Because God desires for it to be destroyed or to be overcome. So what happens when that evil thing is ignored, overcome, subdued? Does it have? Is there any point in its continued existence? No. So then, what happens? Oh, that's why it shatters by machine. One second. No. So then what happens now that spark that's in there, that little godly engine there is why is it there to keep the thing? Existing. But it's existing on what level? On the level of being evil. But once the, there's no place once God has no need for the evil anymore, right? Then the it's released. Then it's released. And it elevates back. So this is the, this is the irony. There's godly sparks trapped in the worst places. Right. And the only way you can release them is to not go to those places. <laughs> and then it's really Yeah, that, and that's why with the new when you're not supposed right. to interact and engage with them. Right, exactly. Uh-huh. Yeah. Now, there's different types of clipas. I don't want to go into all these details. So, Because th- there is a thing here, and a good way to think about it is this. It's very nice that God is tolerating the evil, right? Mm-hmm. But the evil needs to be a little bit more tangible, right? What makes the evil like a tangible thing? What makes the klipas a tangible thing is not the, w- the will of God, which makes him just tolerate them, but it's that little spark that's stuck in it. But that thing that's stuck in it still doesn't mean that it's not a place of death because what happens? It's in a state of actual exile as an aspect of the esoteric doctrine of the exile of the Shekinah is referred to above. So what does that mean? The, the klipa has two relationships with the divine will. Sorry, with, with, with God, right? One is the backside of the divine will and one is the, the little, spark, little spark of light and life, whatever that means, right? Yeah. Okay, so, but neither of those actually make the klipa truly living. Well, because the, 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 the will of God is only hovering over it. It's only tolerating. And that, by the way, that's only the backside of the will. It's not even in the front side of the will. And then the little spark of light and life in it, in it. well, that's so in it that it has become it. So it is essentially living death. Oh, yeah. So is there any like actual life in the klipa? No. No. So it's a place of death. Absolutely and totally. It's like a walking, talking, breathing death. A zombie. No, no. no. 
Because zombies are mindless. It's not mindless. Oh, God. That is scary. Yes, they are scary. No. Okay. No, that's so scary. Good. Okay. So that's only Yeah. So, so in other words, Klippa plugs into godliness in two ways. God's desire for its destruction allow, makes God tolerate it. That's the idea of makif milmaila, the hovering from above. And God sends a little bit of his light and life to be, to, to prop it up. But in propping it up, what happens to that little bit of light and life? It becomes like it, right? It's like, you know, method acting? You ever heard of method acting? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Where the person like actually takes on being the character fully. Mm-hmm. So what can happen to a method actor? You can forget themselves. Yeah. That's what happens to the little divine spark inside. It starts to think it's really like a demon. Oh my god! Yeah. yeah. By the way, that also happens to your soul to some extent yeah, when you sin. Dropping. Yeah, your soul forgets that it's you soul. think that you're supposed you to. You think you're that animal. Yeah, and yeah, that's Figure. what I. Ah! Yeah. No. <laughs> yeah. This makes it all really. So what are we supposed to do? This makes all what? Serious. <laughs> <laughs> the time you're supposed to make us treat this old Judaism thing seriously, it seems to be working. It's like, sinus, it's all about love and tolerance. And we're like the good in all of us. Like, yes, that's true. Also, Kalipa is like the, the, the like animated embodiment of death itself. So, you know. Okay. Fine. Next week, we will now take this back to what is idolatry <laughs> and how Klippa is idolatry. But what, are we ever going to go into what do we do with this? Oh, yeah. That's chapter 23 and 24 and 25. Okay. There's a reason why he brought this up. I know. I'm just saying. I can tell you in a nutshell. Yeah. Okay. The nutshell is like this. The average Jew, God forbid, if they were put in a situation where the choice was actual idolatry or death, that would awaken something inside of themselves and they wouldn't do the idolatry. And even if they did do the idolatry, it would not be sincere because it awakens this thing inside of themselves that just can't tolerate that, the idolatry. Okay? Why can't it tolerate the idolatry? Because it's against everything. Because it's death. But the thing is, it's worse than death. The thing is actually worse than death. But the thing is, that's not unique to idolatry. That's actually true of all sin. sin. All sin is in it is in what is actually happening when you do idolatry. At that moment, you are embodying the klipas. You have become a vehicle for the klipas in this world. And you know what happens when you like do any other sin? The exact same thing. And the more you know that, and the more you know that you would give up your life rather than do idolatry, not because out of principle, because that would wake something up inside of you, then you have to ask yourself, do you want to live in constant denial of that inner truth? Or do you want to like push yourself to live based on the inner truth that you know exists inside of you if you're not feeling it right now? And if you do that, I don't know, maybe you start like doing all the mitzvahs and not sinning from a kind of deep, sincere place, thus fulfilling the... Uh, Requirement to never sin and do the mitzvahs out of love and fear. And you don't think it's coming from a place of fear? Oh, it's definitely going to be a fear. So for why sure. is that good? Because it's a mitzvah to fear God. It's one of the mitzvahs. It's also coming from a place of love. 
chapter 19, that the innate love of God carries with it the absolute fear of, de- of, the, of, of, of the death, of, of absolute separation from God. So that fear not to sin is in fact just an aspect of a love. So it's both love and fear. That's what he says. That's what he says later on. Yeah. Um, uh, so it's really powerful. Oh yeah, the klipas are really powerful. Plus, they're not just. Plus, God is tolerating them. And you know, like parent, there's some parents that tolerate their kids. Yeah. Some parents don't have as much tolerance for their kids. Yeah. So, like, then you have parents that their level of tolerance for their kids just like goes out, like just like, totally crazy. Those kids end up being like demons. Think about it. Think about a parent like their kid misbehaves; they don't punish them. Kid takes money. Kid has access to the credit card, no restrictions. Right? The parents are totally tolerant. Whatever. How does that kid grow up? Terrible. Terrible, right? A demon, right? Because. They have unlimited access. So what happens when the Klippas realize, oh, God is tolerating me and he has infinite tolerance. That means I can get away with anything. 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 Oh. Ah. 